0: If you're keeping track, you know John has has given us these signs. Signs function very specifically and uniquely for John. And this is the seventh sign. Remember, signs point beyond themselves. It's not just for the miracle's sake. We know, uh, if we know our Bibles, we know that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. You'll hear more about that next week. But this is a sign. And it's a very, it's, it's, it's an, an amazing sign. It's probably the most amazing sign that Jesus will accomplish in this gospel of John's telling. Seventh sign. We also have another I am statement. John's been giving us these I am statements. We got the I am, the resurrection, and the life here in this statement, in this section of Scripture. Jesus says something very interesting. He says in verse 4, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. What's the purpose of this text? What's the purpose of what's going on here? Jesus highlights it. He says it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So something bigger is happening here than just the death of Lazarus and ultimately his resurrection. It's the glory of God that that Jesus wants to display through this story and this miracle. What's the point? The point is that this sickness, even death, Darren referenced this already, provides a platform so that the work of God might be displayed in Lazarus' life. Now, our natural response to trial is not typically one of welcome. Very few of us get up and say, you know, I know the benefits of a good trial. Bring it on, Lord. Our response to trial and pain and problem is to rebel against it. It's like an alien intruder on my life. We rebel against it. We work to remove discomfort in our lives as quickly and as painlessly as we can. That's how, that's my take. And I think especially here in the West where we have the means for removing the pain of trial, we move to that very quickly. We do not want to linger in trial. We look to remove it, to expel it from our lives. We run from trial. Trial comes into our lives, and we run from it. We get away from it. And we often miss out on God's perspective on trial. God actually offers, and this passage offers us another perspective on trial than just quickly removing it, running from it, rebelling it, against it. We can offer our trials to God for Him to remove them or retain them as He pleases. We can offer those to God and we can bring glory to His name and deepen our faith and even the faith of others too. We're going to see that Jesus says, I was glad. He's, he says in response to Lazarus' death, He says, I'm glad. For you, disciples, because I'm going to take you with me and I'm going to do something that is going to deepen your faith. This is Romans eight twenty-eight. This is God working all things for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And this is the lesson that I hope we're learning. We're learning to reinterpret trials as opportunities to trust God. We're learning... To reinterpret trials, not as something we quickly rebel at, not as something we must quickly remove from us, not as something that we run away from, but as something that we reinterpret. We begin to reinterpret our trials as opportunities to trust God. I think that's the main point of this first part of the death of Lazarus. We're learning to reinterpret trials as opportunities to trust God. Now, let's go to the first part where we made a question, where we marked a question. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, verse 5. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Don't you expect that to read? When he heard that his friends that he loved was ill, he took off running. Not he waited two days. You ever waited on God? You ever prayed? That doesn't happen? You keep praying? Two days? Four days? Six, eight years? Why does God delay if he loves me? The pain and anguish that we experience in human, as humans makes this question inescapable. Why does God delay? Why doesn't he operate on my timetable? Some of you have experienced real pain. Some of you haven't. When you experience real pain, the question of God's delays becomes like inescapable, almost unbearable. How could you make me wait like this, Lord? Why does God delay? Two thoughts I want to give you about delay. Two thoughts. Two thoughts. The first is that delay in our lives in this fallen world is inevitable. Because we're finite. We live largely unaware of all the circumstances surrounding the events that are taking place, and largely unaware of all the consequences of each of those circumstances. You ever tried to like you ever do this try to get into the mind of God like start thinking about your own life and the moves that got you to where you are and the implications of those maneuvers on other people. It's mind-boggling how God keeps track of all of that. But it's like our minds can't even contemplate that. You could hardly contemplate if if life worked and moved in just a linear straight line, you could hardly keep track of it. But God has got this whole web of circumstances that bring your life to where it is right now and the impact and influence that it's having on others. I look at my kids and I think back to when I met Amy and then we end up getting married and we end up having a family but god knew those my kids before i knew my kids it's like you start thinking about that stuff delay is inevitable because we are not omniscient so we're in, we're headed for delay because we don't see the big picture that god sees only god is a Is omniscient. And and our desires even are not fully purified in this broken world. One day they will be. One day we'll be in heaven and our desires will be fully purified. But even if we were aware of all the implications of God's moves, we still might choose wrongly because we would choose out of our own selfish, impure desires. You ever meet someone who has gone through great trial who would say at the other side of it, I wouldn't trade it because of what God has taught me through it. But they never would have signed up for it when God was bringing it. I'm looking at people. I'm looking at people that have lost loved ones. The death of a spouse. You do not want to endure this. And yet, God has done that to some of you, and he's shown you what he's doing in accomplishing his perfect will for your life in ways that you couldn't understand. If you could see what God was doing, all the moves that he was making, then you would pray according to his will and his moves. But you can't. You can't see it. You can't contemplate it. God's delays do not contradict his love. Because his love is operating at a higher plane. His ways, the scripture says, are higher than our ways. So his love, his delays do not contradict his love. Are you in the middle of a delay right now? You're waiting. You've been praying You're in pain over something. You're you're crying out to God in, in tears. Maybe it's tears that other people don't see, but God sees them. You're waiting. What God wants you to know is that his delays do not contradict his love for you. When he remains, it says right here, remember they took off at the end and they went to the region where John the Baptist was. When he remains there ministering to others, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love those in Bethany that he's on the way to see in two days. He loves everyone. So delays are not inevitable. His delays are not final. Get this, church. We need to know this. God's delays in your life are not final. God comes in his own time and in his own way. No doubt that's always later than we would choose. Divine perspective. From a divine perspective, God always moves at the right time. He always does. From his perspective, he's never, not with one of us, ever said, you know what? On that one, I wish I could take that back because I moved at the wrong time on that. He's never said that about any of us. He's always, from his perspective, said, I was right on time. It's us that have a hard time seeing that. But God's saying, I'm right on time. God is the ultimate timekeeper. He created time, and he's never late. For his appointments. That should comfort us when we think about delays. Because what we're learning is we're learning to reinterpret trials as opportunities to trust God. Are you experiencing a delay? What God may be challenging you to do is to reinterpret that delay as an opportunity to wait on God and see him come through in a way that you would have never planned or expected still hard, isn't it? I would love to say something about Thomas the doubter. But I'll let you go home and think about that humorous statement in verse 16. So Thomas called the twin. That's doubting Thomas. Remember, he's the one that said, I, I got to see the holes in his hands. Thomas takes a beating. But he, he does a good one right here, too. When he knows, the disciples are saying, let's not go back there. Remember last time they picked up the stones, they were ready to stone you. And we came back over here to the area where John the Baptist, everybody likes us. People are believing in you. I know Lazarus is dead and you love him, but we can't go back there. There might still be standing there with stones ready to kill you. And Jesus says, I'm going. And Thomas says, oh, let's go die with him then. Thomas is learning some things about what it means to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. Now look at Martha. Don't you wish that you could understand Martha's tone? I think we get a a good read on it. But the first sentence, you know, how does that first sentence hit you? Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I could imagine that coming out a lot of different ways. Lord, we love you so much. If you had been here, I know that my brother would not have died. I could also imagine, where the heck were you? I mean, I thought you said we were special to you. Now, I don't think that was her tone because she then says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she says, but even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So there's this confidence in God. Like I, I when all seems lost, I know you can do whatever you want to do. I trust you. There's a real confidence in God. The greater the challenge, the greater the miracle. The greater the strengthening of our faith, and the greater the glory of God. Are you facing a great challenge? Then expect a great miracle. Because at the end, God's going to work it all for good. I don't know what he's going to do. Your, your faith will be strengthened and God will receive the glory. He tells Martha that I am the resurrection and the life. The life that Jesus gives is nothing less than the indestructible life of the resurrection. That's what he's promised to those who believe in his name. The very life of a deathless God himself. That's what he's giving. So even if the worst happens, even if the worst happens, you die. If you're in Christ, you pay, death is only a transition. You, you pass through that and then you go on living with God forever. Resurrection life triumphs over death. Who's happy about that? If you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, that is not a promise you can claim. If you're in Christ, the resurrection life triumphs over death. Death has lost its sting. Death death has been defeated. Death has been destroyed. And you go on to life forever. So, in light of this truth... We should learn to reinterpret our trials as opportunities to trust in God. Now, let me show you God's heart. I want you to see God's heart. One of them you see very clearly. One of these you probably don't see very clearly, and it has blown me away this week. The first is God's heart to you in your trial. So I want you to see God's heart, and I want you to see one aspect of his heart. Actually, I want you to see two, but I'm going to explain one right here. It says in verse 33 that Jesus was deeply moved. Verse 35. Jesus wept. Jesus is not remote from you in your feelings of pain. When it says that Jesus wept, when he saw Mary weeping, and he saw the Jews, Lazarus' friends, weeping, It says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And one aspect of that is that he was moved emotionally. And the idea that he wept is probably the shortest verse in all the Bible and probably the most eloquent as well because it captures Jesus' heart for the people that he loves. A better translation than Jesus wept because Jesus wept looks to me like you know, someone crying in the corner. A better translation would be, at that moment, deeply moved. When he saw Mary's pain, when he saw the pain of those that loved Lazarus, it's, it's as if Jesus, at that moment, it's not as if, he was so moved that he burst into tears. They're not professional tears of the inwardly detached. He's one with us in our need. He's one with us in our pain. He's one with us in our trials. He's one with us in our hurts. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Jesus is with you. And he feels and he has felt. He's lived our experience from the inside. His tears at that moment expressed the emotion of his heart. He felt pain just as you have felt pain, but there's something else going on here that is, just blows my mind. And you wouldn't see it, I don't think, at first glance. This word, deeply moved, I'll say the Greek, I'll pronounce it wrong, but none of you would be able to correct me anyway. Embra, or maybe a few of you, I'm looking at one guy who maybe could correct me for this, and Jason's not here, so he can't correct me. mamoai. Deeply moved. mamoai. It's not just a feeling of emotion. The word is translated in places other than the Bible. So the Greek would use it to... to it would, be, it would be something that captures the snorting of horses. <laughs> Watch Jesus snorting like a horse. <laughs> What's Embra Mamoi? It's an outburst, not of painful emotion, of anger. Jesus is outraged in his spirit. Why? Who's he mad at? This is a great moment. I wish I could see all, I wish you could see all of your faces. Some of you really want an answer to that question. Who's he mad at? Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus, which I should say, we know that he's dead now because it's been four days. The Jews actually waited four days to bury their dead, or they waited at least three days because the common belief of the day was that the spirit, and this makes sense when you lived in a day where they did not the kind of medicine that we did, people would go into fevers and then resuscitate and wake up. So, so they didn't bury them right away for fear that you'd bury someone alive. So they would wait three days and they believed that the spirit hovered above the person in real close proximity, even watching the people grieve over them. This is what they believed. But on the fourth day, the body starts to stink. It's time to put them in the grave. It's over, spirit's gone. Bury. So Jesus wants to wait the four days. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to say, ah, the spirit was hovering above the body and they just resuscitated him. This guy's beyond resuscitation. He's been buried. So when Jesus goes to the grave, he goes to the grave of a dead man. And he approached that grave with one emotion, uncontrollable grief, which we just talked about, but he also approached it with inexpressible rage. Why is Jesus raging and who is he raging at? The distress of his friends has enraged Jesus because it has brought home the consciousness of evil and death and the unnaturalness of death. And Calvin talks about death as man's violent tyranny. Jesus is enraged at something, at someone. He's enraged with death. In Mary's grief, he feels and sees the misery of the whole human race, and he burns with rage against death, which is the great oppressor of mankind. It is what we all fear, death. It's what it's the final, it's the final separation. And it is what sin brought into the world. It wasn't supposed to be this way, but we rebelled and sinned, and sin brought death into the world. So Jesus sees death as this unnatural enemy of his, which he came to vanquish. Death is the object of his wrath. Death and the author of death. Satan and, and, and sin and its contribution to our death is the object of Jesus' wrath in this moment. And he burns with rage. This is the enemy that Jesus came to destroy. So with tears in his eyes but rage in his heart, he approaches the tomb of Lazarus as our champion who prepares for conflict. And we don't see it yet because we'll read it next week. But can I give you a little teaser? Spoiler alert. Jesus wins. <laughs> An enemy has done this and this enemy I have come to slay. Those that are in Christ die biologically, but biological death doesn't disturb the continuity of living existence of God's people in the slightest. If you're in Christ, you're going to be with him forever, (laughs) forever. You don't have to fear death. If you're older and you're closer to death than some of us, you don't have to fear You do not have to fear death. You're going to pass through death if you're in Christ. You're going to pass through it, and you're going to go on to live with Him forever. Live with Him forever. I got to read you this quote. I read. Can you guys bear with me while I find this quote? This quote: Victor Hugo. Who knows Victor Hugo? Raise your hand. Oh, good. I got a literary bunch here. Victor Hugo, writer of Les Mis. Okay. Obviously, a believer. Listen to this. When I go down to the grave, I can say like so many others that I have finished my day's work. But I cannot say that I have finished my life. Another day's work will begin the next morning. The tomb is not a blind alley. It is a thoroughfare. It closes with the twilight to open with the dawn. (laughs) Don't you love that? You didn't understand it. Go home and read it. What he's basically saying is when my life ends here on earth, my life begins. I can't do much better than that to get you hype. Once a person believes in Christ, the life is. Christ is poured into the soul of that person and that life is eternal. If you have not trusted in Christ, I urge you to do so because you do not have life in his name until you believe in him. But once you believe in him, he pours his life into you and you begin to live for him and death will not have a grip on you. You'll die and go on to be with him forever and ever and ever and ever. So trust in Jesus. Believe in his name. Martha ends this way. Let me ask the band to return. Martha says this. When he, Jesus says on the resurrection and the life, Martha says in verse 27, she, he said, do you believe this, Martha? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. There may not be a clearer confession of Christ, of trust in Christ, of belief in Christ, Then this woman who is standing at the grave of her brother, whom she loved, believing that God's going to do something amazing here, saying to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Like Martha, do you believe? If you do, then what we're learning from this passage is that we're reinterpreting our trials and our challenges as opportunities to trust our great, loving, caring, sin-and-death-defeating Savior. Amen. Let's stand and worship Him.